Quiet, please. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. Ready, set, and begin. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. Hey everybody, welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm host Jordan Hammond with co-host Andrew Plaw. Hello, hello. And today we are joined with a very special security guest uh, for a security-focused episode. Um, he is a principal IR consultant at Mandiant. Um, he served in the U.S. Army. Thank you for your service. Uh, former sysadmin, cybersecurity adjunct professor, PowerSheller at heart, um, has spoken at a bunch of PowerShell summits. You can see him speaking about PowerShell and security all the time. We are joined by Fernando Tomlinson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, in doing preparation for this, we were looking through your GitHub and we uh, were commenting on just how much awesome stuff there is there. I mean, there's a whole bunch of projects ranging from group policy templates to tools to all kinds of stuff. So I was I was looking at the uh, specifically your, your group policy template recommendations, mm-hmm. and I noticed you have a, a whole bunch of things that security focus, and you do have some for uh, PowerShell specific, and you have enable the module logging for PowerShell version three or and above, uh, but I didn't see anything about uh, blocking the version two, which I think the last security we had said version two is where most of the the bad stuff comes from. Is that something that you do outside of group policy separately, or is that can that be done with group policy? No, absolutely. Yeah, it, it could be done with group policy. I, I didn't put it in there, but yeah, as, as a person's trying to lock down PowerShell, absolutely, I would I would block that registry key associated with uh, downgrade. Yeah, those are called downgrade attacks, right? Whenever you use a lower version to kind of get around some of the security enhancements in the current version. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's quite interesting to watch adversaries do it live, right? Like you're you're following. Uh, the artifacts, and you're like, okay, they're in PowerShell. Okay, they're doing Who Am I? Okay, they're checking the version. And then next thing you know, uh, they're downgrading. And then there goes your trail as far as PowerShell logging um, being, being gone. Very interesting to hear that perspective. See, that, that's, uh, that, that explains the gap in our security knowledge because you talk about following the trail and nope. No, but yeah. uh, if I see something suspicious, I'll alert the guy that knows security, and he <laughs> can follow the trail. <laughs> well, is it that dissimilar to, for example, like you're looking at some regular issue on a server, you're looking at event logs, you're collecting them, you're kind of it's kind of similar, just a different process applied to like how you would do incident response, kind of. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, and you know, one of the big things when incident response is is having the evidence. Right. So if I go into an organization and, um, you know, they're not very keen on looking at the data, but they're collecting data. They have all the PowerShell logging. They're shipping event logs off somewhere, um, things of that nature. Then it makes my job uh, uh, a lot easier. And then I can apply that analytical adversary like mindset uh, to those artifacts to paint that story. I saw that you had a PowerShell summit talk on incident response with PowerShell. Um, so I guess that kind of points to you can use PowerShell to retrieve a lot of these artifacts and to do this kind of investigative process. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? The, the, the premise for that was I recall some of my time in, in, in the Army in the Department of Defense, and we would go out to do incident response. 
and one customer would allow us to bring the next gen uh, EDR, the next gen security appliance and plug it into the network. Another client would not allow us to do that, but I still had a job to do. Uh, so how do we get after that? And PowerShell being inherent is really when I started getting into it and being able to leverage PowerShell uh, to be able to do those things. Building implant agents, being able to do interrogation, and really using the PowerShell language that's already built in and accessible to get after those tasks. So those are some, I guess, the benefits of using PowerShell. But a lot of times we hear about concerns. People are taking advantage of PowerShell. We should just disable it. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah. So uh, the, the very thing that makes PowerShell great is the very thing that makes it you know, dangerous and lucrative uh, for uh, malicious mindset individuals. Um, I don't think we're in such a place where we can totally disable PowerShell. Microsoft has done a, a great job in one respect of wrapping a lot of uh, their services and technology around the language. Uh, it's quite interesting when some organizations try to disable it and they disable or block access to the executables. And really, it's that PowerShell DLL uh, that's being leveraged in the background. Um, so while we're trying to block it, we're still not actually doing it, and people are still able to uh, leverage that DLL and execute PowerShell command. So it really goes beyond, in my opinion, trying to disable it and more about uh, education and understanding of what it provides, what it can do, and being able to illuminate um, any malicious activity associated with it. And that, and that goes back to um, you know, kudos to the PowerShell team for a lot of the login functionality capabilities uh, that they've added in. Um, JEA, um, you know, we talked about some of the logging things of that nature to really make that illumination when people uh, try to misuse it. I, I think part of the education that's still um, an ongoing thing is trying to ensure people who are in those positions have an understanding of it. You know, I recall being one of the, the lone admins, if you will, um, and having this in my network and it's like, okay, well, it's there. If I don't see or hear about it being misused and I'm under the pretense that it's not being misused. Uh, so that lack of education is really what's, what's kind of hurting. And this is where things like this podcast and a number of other initiatives in the world are, are really helping to get after that. Definitely. Um, I hear a lot of people really kind of coming to that understanding more and more these days, because for a while it was really kind of hard to hear people uh, talking about this kind of thing, about how useful PowerShell is and not just disabling it. It seems to be more and more that that's being widely understood, which is exciting yeah. to see. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I recall some early talks from like, you know, Dave Kennedy um, talking about PowerShell is, is it really started to be an eye opening thing. And while I certainly agree people are becoming much more cognizant to it, um, I also recall in the last, you know, maybe year, um, a lot of my peers in the field talking about how PowerShell was becoming part of the dying breed in terms of cybersecurity, right? Like adversaries are starting to go away from it and things of that nature. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, in, in my day job at Mandia, I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, out of 10 investigations, I'd say easily seven of them uh, contain PowerShell today. 
right? So it's it's certainly still alive. Um, it's certainly still being used, and um, people are starting to certainly catch on to it. Uh, the implementation of the appropriate login in organizations is really kind of still hit or miss. Uh, but you know, we got to keep preaching the word and and continue to be part of that change. I think a big part of changing the narrative was the recent article where the NSA said PowerShell is critical for security. That's a yeah. big change. Absolutely, right? Like that SZA uh, published one, and and rather than them talk about you know let's block it, let's get rid of it, they talked about the things that we should be talking about: how to live uh, smartly with it in, in a world in which it's really not going anywhere. And part of why those documents were published, in my opinion, was because in, in, you know, in, in their respective bubbles, if you will, they too are noticing that it is not going away, but certainly on a steady path of use for adversaries. Yeah, that, those documents were huge. So you're an incident response. Um, what kind of role, like for someone who doesn't know about this process, like what kind of, what's an example situation of where you would be um, working with a client? Or what is incident response in general? Yeah, so you know, incident response at the core is uh, essentially responding to uh, something, right? So you can almost think of it in layman's terms as a firefighter, right? Work with me here. Somebody's house catches on fire. There needs to be someone or some entity to come and respond to that. They need to be able to help put the fire out, help make sense of what happened, and then help get that uh, entity back on their feet as quickly as humanly possible. Now, in large respects, that goes outside the bounds of what a firefighter would actually do. But the equivalency in the digital space is really what incident response is all about. Day-to-day, there's sysadmins, there's cybersecurity professionals in the organization. Something has happened, um, and they want to be able to call us in, conduct an investigation, make recommendations to them um, on how they can best uh, recover from the incident, what data was lost, and really, how do they prevent something like this from happening uh, moving forward? Awesome. So you're, you and it sounds like your organization is filled with people just seeing a whole bunch of things all the time, really having a very unique perspective um, that a lot of us just as sysadmins or whatever, just don't quite get to see. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm very blessed in that aspect. It's never a dull day at Mandiant. Um, some of the people that I work with are some of the smartest um, in the world that I've ever met. And um, every day we're seeing something different. What I really enjoy about that is not only seeing something different, but being able to share those experiences, exposures with entities that we're supporting. Hey, this is what I'm uh, recommending. This is how you should approach this. This is what's going on. This isn't because I, you know, Googled it for lack of better words. It's because I've dealt with this same situation um, numerous times, right? When we're seeing PowerShell, like, this is what this code is doing. This is why the actor is trying to do this. Again, it's because I'm, you know, knee deep in, in PowerShell, if you will. And here's some, some actionable recommendations for you to prevent this next time from happening or to be able to get left of the boom, if you will, um, to be able to identify it within your organization. 
So I've always wondered with things like, uh, like most of the incidents you see, is it a, a targeted type attack or is it just more of a, an opportunity? They were just cast in their net and they found a weakness. Yeah. It, 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 the answer is yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a mixture of, of, of both. Uh, some are very, very targeted. Um, and some are, you know, this, this vulnerability dropped today. I'm doing scans and it's a window of opportunity and I'll see what I can get on the back end uh, of that network. So I, I was noticing uh, when we're filming this yesterday was patch Tuesday and, and uh, based on the last couple of months, I think security's done, right? We're, uh, there's been so few vulnerabilities passed. I think we're, we're, we're clear. No, no, never, no. That, never that. Right. Um, you know, uh, it's like having a kid sometimes, right? Uh, and this may be a bad analogy, but for my parents out there, maybe you understand. Um, when you have a young kid and they're quiet, it isn't because they're behaving in some respect. There's something happening that you, you're just not made aware of it yet. So um, if anything, the, the lack of publishing or, or what have you um, it's more scary and, and petrifying, if you will, for me than anything else, especially as we round, you know, into quarter three and get near the end of the year. Uh, the holiday season certainly has packed joyous presence the last couple of years. So the, the lower vulnerability count is because they've all found something new and exciting that uh, we don't know about yet. P possibility. Possibility. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, the, the other thing, too, is what I find quite interesting is, um, you know, there, there's, of course, zero days. There's these high visible vulnerabilities that are being leveraged. But then there's vulnerabilities from, like, you know, years past that are still executing in, in an organization, right? Um, the amount of times that we see things like, you know, Mimi Cats executing in an organization uh things like power exploit or powershell empire right like things that have been around for example for a long long time um and are executing as if they're brand new in an organization um is is really 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 interesting so it sounds like kind of just doing the basics to of what we know currently is going to get people pretty far away at being protected you know it's not necessarily always about the latest and greatest coolest trendy exploit it's important to have the baselines patched. Yeah, yeah. I mean, baselines are, are key, right? Like, I, I recall an instance where um, an actor got on uh, this organization's system. It was a regular endpoint. And once they established access there, they utilized um, essentially uh, web requests, right, uh, to be able to reach out through PowerShell, reach to GitHub, downloaded some other malicious PowerShell code, and then had it execute. So talking with the organization, you know, is this something indicative of the primary user who uses this box, that they would utilize PowerShell in that way? Is it indicative that the organization or this user would reach out to GitHub and some of these other things? If the answer is no, then we can slowly start to close the gap, but also make something that's more applicable to your organization. If nobody in your organization utilizes GitHub or has a business 
uh, need for it, well, let's go ahead and reduce that attack surface. If people aren't using, uh, you know, web client uh, as a .NET class in your organization or there's no business need for it, well, well let's look at how do we close that gap as well. Um, or we need to be able to make sure we're logging it, and then that becomes an alert very, very quickly so you can um, be triggered to it. So you like the approach of uh, allow list instead of deny list. So it's lock down everything and then just allow through what you need. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? That's, that is a, you have a higher probability of, of being much safer, but it requires a significant more amount of of human hours associated with it right like if we were to put a person in front of their own system windows 10 and say tell me everything that your system needs to access we're going to allow that and then we're going to block everything else uh people would struggle so then we uh we increase that with an organization right 10 people hundreds of people thousands of people and nobody wants to be in a position to have something blocked that affects some department, right? But uh, yeah, if we can get to the point of allow listing uh, and then denying everything else, that would be um, great for sure. So just like with automation, the, the best automation requires the most work up front and then it pays dividends later on. So security is kind of a similar concept if you follow that path. Yeah, it, it, it really is, right? And you know, adversaries are are forever changing their tactics. Some remain the same. I, I get it. Um, but in an instance where um, what you have in your organization is certainly important, they're changing their tactics, right? And you want to be able to highlight, illuminate, and be able to keep up with that. So um, that that's a that's certainly an approach. Now, I recall earlier we were talking about, you know, you were following along the PowerShell artifacts and kind of um, investigating things. And Jordan mentioned that he didn't have that experience before. And one thing, as you were mentioning that, that, that kind of triggered in my mind was it's similar to some CTFs that I've done, some like security type CTFs. Like I've had that feeling in those situations. Obviously, I haven't had a bunch of IR experience, but I kind of, it's a similar kind of chasing the evidence to find out where the, the CTF flag is. Yeah. Um, and you have a few projects that are kind of related to uh, doing exercises to kind of learn more about PowerShell. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, for me, it's the educator in me, it's the teacher in me. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, there's two platforms. One of them, uh, underthewire.tech. Um, and really, you know, if you're not familiar with it, you might be like, well, that's a weird name. There happens to be a site called Over the Wire. Uh, I believe they're a .org. Um, and as I explain what my site's about, then I'll pay homage for sure to their site. So we allow you, and I say we, two buddies of mine, Pete DiGiorgio and Alex Durkis and myself, we run Under the Wire. Uh, we have servers that we allow you to SSH into we provide you nothing but a PowerShell shell, um, and then we have challenges. So challenge one might be, uh, tell me the level, or excuse me, tell me the version of PowerShell uh, that this shell is executing in. And you'll utilize your PowerShell Kung Fu to figure it out. You might have to Google it, that's fine, and do some research, but out of research comes exposure and experience and potentially remembrance, if you will. 
But nonetheless, once you determine what that uh, level or excuse me, that version is, that version number becomes the password for another user. And the next user is the next level. So then you rinse and repeat. There would be a different question and the answer there becomes the password for the next user. Now, we didn't just come up with that notion on our own. Over the wire, that's what they do, but they're focused on Bash. So we follow that same concept, but for PowerShell, and we just had to pay homage and, and respect um, in, in terms of that. Now, under the wire focuses on the core aspects of PowerShell, right? We want you to be able to move around comfortably, be able to utilize some of the common commandlets, be able to do some data manipulation and retrieval. All core things that once you start to get a handle on, you can slice and dice and combine together and be a lot more lethal. When you're ready to move on beyond that, and let's say you're, you're security focused or maybe you're an admin as well, uh, then I developed another site called posh-hunter.com, poshhunter.com. And what happens there is I give you a virtual machine that you download. It's riddled with artifacts. And then you'll utilize the website. There'll be certain scenarios that will have you go back in the virtual machine and find the answer. You'll then supply the answer in the website. You'll get points, accumulate points and all that good stuff. The big thing for me when developing this was it's scenario based, right? So there's a question that might say, hey, you're a blue teamer working in the SOC. You just got a call saying a computer is doing some funky stuff. You remoted in and now you're gonna look at event logs. And all you have in that virtual machine is PowerShell ISE and PowerShell console. All the other GUI-like stuff have been removed. Not to make this more difficult, but to really ensure that the learning objective is kept, right? If I asked you or any of us to get the IP address of our system, we might be like, yeah, sure thing. Let me pop open command prompt. Let me type IP config. How do I do that in PowerShell? That might take an extra minute. I didn't even know you can do that. But once you are exposed to that and you know it's something that could be done, the next time you are faced with that situation, um, you can add that to your, your toolbox. So both of those sites, under the wire at tech, poshhunter.com, free in nature, all about helping people learn the language. Really exciting. Um, a lot of times whenever I talk to people about PowerShell, they ask for like, oh, what are some things I could do? I wonder if there's any open source projects I can contribute to. I just want to write. What do I write? Well, get experience by doing things like this. These yeah. are designed scenarios and things to help you get started and to show you really cool things and learn new things. Um, I, and it's the best way to learn is by actually doing it because you're actually kind of solving a problem. You're actually engaging your brain. It's not just reading words off a page, which, you know, I, I do that a lot. And sometimes it sticks. And a lot of times I need to do that in addition to some other types of discovery. Um, so really cool projects. Thanks so much for uh, creating those. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we're about seven years strong on that. So um, it, it's the, the test of time and people are logging in every day, brand new IPs and yeah, it's still going. That is so cool to kind of build something and just have it keep giving value. Keeps, yeah. it's awesome. This feels like the, uh, oh, I can't remember the website, but something basically would grade your PowerShell knowledge based on a test. And I've never wanted to take that because 
I don't, I don't think I could take the blow to my ego. Yeah. You know, anytime it's funny because if, if we came up with something, we're like, Hey, we need code to do ABC. I'm like, you know, hold my, my water real quick. Give me a couple of seconds. Um, but the minute we're like, okay, we now need to share that code out. I'm like, okay, well, it took me a couple of seconds to write it. It's probably going to take me an hour to professionalize it. And then maybe another 20, 30 minutes to write a how to document. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm really trying to say here is um, I, I despise really being judged on my code uh, as long as it works um, and you know it, it's understood I'm good with it I, I used to say in compile code is as long as it compiles I'm, I'm good so I got good news on the the documentation front I think Stevie Koshi just gave a talk on automating the uh, how-to docs oh, with, with your modules so uh uh, we'll, we'll probably all need to go and, and watch that one so we can remove that from our uh, our, our uh, workspace. Yeah, yeah, and, and get a little bit more uh, time back in our life. <laughs> so I noticed in the past you've done a talk on PowerShell on Linux. Where did your PowerShell on Linux journey begin? When did you start venturing into that territory? Yeah, so, you know, I, I guess I'll go back a little bit further. Um, I I felt most comfortable in Linux from an OS perspective. And I really started off as a Python guy. Um, when I realized that a lot of things that we were doing were not very Linux focused, but Windows focused, combined with not having those EDRs that I talked about, that's really where I started in PowerShell. Fast forward a little bit, and now Linux is being presented a lot more, at least for me, and while I'm still a Python guy, I teach it collegiately and use it quite often, um, my PowerShell love, for lack of better words, has grown tremendously where the minute it became open source and it became part of the uh, platform where you could install it, I started uh, exploring it and it felt really, really comfortable, right? I quite often, when I'm in PowerShell, I'm like, okay, here's how I, you know, echo something or print something. I'm like, okay, when I'm in Python, okay, I got to do it this way. But to be able to utilize one syntax, no matter the two platforms, uh, became very, very enticing for me. Um, And that's really where it it, it started. Uh, The other great thing about it is, you know, as people utilize PowerShell a lot more, predominantly from a Windows perspective, I really wanted to hone in on the cross-compatibility, the cross-platform piece so they can easily transition uh, back to Linux. Uh, some people would argue, well, that's been the case with Python for years, right? But I would be more likely to find, in my opinion, PowerShell installed on Linux than what I would be Python installed on Windows. That makes sense. Which, which is interesting because uh, PowerShell on anything other than Windows is still relatively new in the grand scheme. I mean, in I guess technology is so quick, it's not new anymore, but overall it feels like it's a more recent change than Python. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, in, in part of that, that talk, uh, while I, I say a lot of great things, that's one of the things I, I acknowledge. You know, hey, you know, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, there was X amount of commandlets resident in my Windows machine. When I did a count of commandlets in Linux, it was substantially less, right? Um, the team will get there, but a lot of the core stuff um, is, is there. 
right? Uh, so yeah, it's got a little bit of way to go, but the, the core aspect, uh, the usability, um, the easeability, if that's even a real word, um, is still there. And do you find yourself using that to like navigate directories instead of bash whenever you're on Linux? Yeah. So, you know, quite naturally, I, I jump on a Linux box and I'm like PWSH. And I'm like, oh, I don't have it on here. Can we install it? Yes. Okay. And that's the next thing I do. If not, then I find myself using Python versus uh, bash. Well, for, for navigating directors, I'll just use bash. But for anything else, yeah, it'll probably just be Python. But quite naturally, my first thought is now PowerShell. Yeah. Um, whenever I talk to anybody about PowerShell and Linux, I just get so excited by the fact that all these skills that I've built with PowerShell and Windows over the years are still applicable. I'm at home. I, I get PowerShell on there. I know how to navigate my directories perfectly. I can do anything I want uh, yeah. within reason. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I won't mention the, the person's name, but I, I got a, uh, a message via LinkedIn um, where the, the, a person had saw the pipe PowerShell on Linux talking was like, hey, thank you for the talk. Um, you know, I'm starting out in cybersecurity and depending on who I talk to, everybody is telling me a different language to learn. And, you know, my advice, number one is learn a language and be good at it. But if you are already comfortable with PowerShell, then don't necessarily rack your brain to learn Python just yet on Linux. You have something that you can easily transition over with that will allow you to be productive and allow you to meet your goals and objectives right now. I definitely prefer that approach. Yeah. We don't want to force PowerShell on people. It's not always the right solution all the time, um, especially if you already have a lot of experience. Um, that being said, PowerShell is a really good language to get that to be that first language to show yeah. you those concepts that you can then take into Python quite easily and um, you know start off at a much farther level than you would if you're just a beginner. Absolutely. It took me seven years to become passable at PowerShell. I don't have another seven years <laughs> to get Python. Hey, hey well, you, you know, it, it, again, I love Python as well. Um, but when I look at the help documentation, being able to to go in PowerShell and just help a keyword and get that documentation, it's pretty robust. And if I'm still lost, being able to get examples. And in some cases, one of the examples is what I'm looking for or nearly close to what I'm looking for. The help documentation surpasses man pages any day of the week. And now with PS Readline, you can open up the help and you don't even have to break out of your writing, you just hit write it out and I think it was about X to get back into your command. Yeah, yeah, which which makes it even much more simpler and easier uh, for a person. Yeah, if you're listening to this and you haven't yet, install module PS Readline, get the latest version for yourself. Um, these features are so sick. I, I feel like a car salesman, every single time PS Readline is brought up, I just have to tell people, seriously, actually install it. Like we hear about cool tech and stuff like that all the time. And we put it on our checklist of like, oh, I'll do that at some point. PS Readline, at some point is now. Get that. It is yeah. so, I can't get enough of it. It's, we ended up talking about that on the webcast. And then we had some people training at the office. Like, oh, this is a lot of cool stuff. It's like, we've been talking about this. <laughs> but it's, uh, that, that is the one, PS Readline, we get the absolute most feedback on both someone say, hey, I found another awesome feature for it or 
just this this changed everything is PS Readline, I think, is kind of the module at the time. It's the number one. Yeah, well, you know the other great thing about PS Readline, uh, specifically from an incident response perspective, is that console host history file that's in there, right? So one, if the appropriate login isn't enabled and I'm not able to catch stuff in the event logs or in the transaction log, uh, that console host history file isn't very well known, right? To be able to go there and see commands uh, that a person has typed in uh, is certainly been huge as a, as a golden nugget. And then once you know that's there, go ahead and look through and see how many times you've typed a password in there. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is that is saved on your computer. Yeah. I think there's some filtering on that. Uh, at least in the past, there was some filtering you could do on PS Readline to prevent certain things, like if it has dash key, dash credential from being yeah. saved to the history. Um, I don't know if that's on by default, though. We should probably find it, out. It's not. It's still not? Okay, no. yeah. Well, I had a link to it last time when we initially talked about PS Readline to the thing you can add to your handler. Um, that'll just make it so that if it matches a certain regex pattern, which includes credential key, as plain text, all those things, it won't save it. Ah. But so you're saying in, in IR, you've had success looking at that file? Very much so. Absolutely. Right. Um, people, th th there are some well known logging that adversaries know, right? In some cases, they go clean up after themselves, in other cases, they just don't care. Uh, but this has been one of those things that I don't think they fully understand or know that their actions are being written there. Um, it has become, you know, very, very useful um, for, for, for the team. Um, the, the only thing about it is, you know, from a forensics perspective, while you get the commands or get the items that were typed in, uh, you only really get two timestamps. You get the timestamp in which the file was created. And if it's a user like, you know, let's say one of you who you've already been using PowerShell, then that timestamp doesn't help me because you would have created it inadvertently sometime before. And then you get the last written timestamp, right? So from a forensics perspective, you know, there's a, a gap, like could be as early as this, could be a latest that. But one thing's for sure is the items in there were certainly typed in, right? Were certainly executed. Um, and that's huge. The heck, I'm thinking, because you're talking about the hackers don't know about this, and then here you are publicly talking about it, and it's uh, it's an interesting game. You have to talk about it to get the word out there, but you can't get the word out to only uh, the ethical people. It, it makes it an interesting uh, interesting conundrum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that, that also goes back to the other aspect of logging. Like, I, I can't foot stomp that enough, right? Um, I, I think from an admin perspective, there's Logging is certainly helpful for an investigation. There's two parts to that. One, I need the application to actually log. I really recommend it log to the event log, something a little bit more difficult to, to wipe, right? The event log, I'm either wiping the whole security log or none of it at all. I say that loosely because I wrote a tool in PowerShell called invoke ghost log that allows you to remove the actual lines, but that's neither here nor there. Actually, it actually plays into my next point because part one is to get it into the event log. Part two is to get it into a log aggregation server off the system, 
right? So now even if somebody goes in and starts to wipe the log or anything else, you have it in another area. The bad thing about the PS Readline um, console host history file is it's a flat text file, right? So nothing in theory stops me from going in there, opening up backspacing all the way out and things of that nature. This is where you would want to get it written to the event log and you would ultimately want to get it written to some other log aggregation server off that system. So would you use like Windows event forwarding to handle that? Uh, it depends on the organization, right? If if your organization is on a pennies budget, for lack of better words, then yeah, let's let's grab a server, a VM, let's do some 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 Windows event forwarding, right? Just so we can have it in the central location. Um, if you're one of those organizations that has, uh, you know, logarithm, Splunk, Elastic, you know, not saying one is better than the other, but you have something outside, something like that, then, then we can orchestrate a method for you to get there as well. Now, in instances where you have something like the console host history file that doesn't write to the event logs by default, um, some people know, some don't know, but there is a write event log, write event, might be write event, write event log, one of the two. Nonetheless, there's a method within PowerShell to be able to write to the event log. You can either create your own or you can write to the application log and create your own source. So for me, when I was teaching the PowerShell uh, course at these conferences, that's one thing I would show people, right? We all kind of have these applications that are in-house, that an in-house developer developed. It works, but the logging maybe isn't the best. Well, that's a method that we can take that and get it into the event log. And then from there, being able to get it off to a log aggregation server. Awesome. So yeah, you kind of make make it sound simple there. You get your event logs, you put them local on the event on the computer, and then you take care of of shipping them off somewhere, whatever solution you got. Um, and with your other solutions, there's solutions in PowerShell to write to the event logs to you know just make sure you're catching that too, and you can trace things. It, it really is right. Like if you can, I can't stress enough. Capturing the events makes life easier, not for if but when an incident happens. And PowerShell can help us do that. From a from a blue team perspective, PowerShell can help us do that, right? Um, and yeah, you got options. Yeah, and I think once you kind of have that data and you you have it, you can start going through it. You can then worry about how we respond to things and how we're going to collect and kind of go through this data. Um, but you don't have to solve every single part of security at once. You know, you have to build towards things. Yeah, you, you definitely have to, to build towards it. And, you know, it's it's small things that we can start with um, just one or two things, you know, that should never happen in your organization or the rate of occurrence of them happening in your organization is so small that you would want to be made aware of them. Um, and then can we solve that with PowerShell? More than likely, absolutely. Yes. Well, let's develop some code to be able to uh, to do that, you know, from from the perspective of doing memory captures and live analysis. And, you know, in the incident response, we like to bucket things into two areas for analysis, either dead box, which is where we grab your hard drive and we're doing analysis of a hard drive offline, if you will. And then there's live analysis where your system is still online and we're retrieving metadata to be able to um, to do that analysis. And PowerShell can help with with both. Right. So also on my GitHub, you'll see 
uh, some code. Um, gosh, I forget what it's even called. Um, but anyway, you, you, you mount a dead box a hard drive and you can run that PowerShell code against it and it will print out a report of some of the things that you might be most concerned with uh, when doing analysis. Um, really, I'll take a second to go down uh, memory lane and then talk about the live analysis again. Uh, but Pete DiGiorgio, one of the guys who does uh, Under the Wire with me, at one time in the military, he was my boss. And I recall being on an engagement and we found something. I told my boss, he told his boss, and now everybody is excited, right? What's next? What else did you find? You know, all these things. Well, I had given my boss the initial thought. I still needed time to be able to go deeper. And with that code that I wrote that the name still escapes me, it allowed me to be able to do triage analysis of a dead box image to be able to provide my leadership, to be able to, I don't want to say appease them, but to lessen their excitement to allow me to go deeper. Because these are things that no matter how many times I do analysis, I'm always getting those same things, right? So that's been able to use PowerShell from a dead box perspective. From a live response perspective, you know, there's all kinds of uh, security endpoint EDRs. I, I won't name any, um, but um, a lot of them, for, for example, grab a list of running processes. Well, we can absolutely do that with PowerShell. What about a list of services? Same thing. Uh, network connections, same things. File metadata, you know, USN journal, MFT records, same thing. We can do those things with PowerShell. So we can slowly but surely either build our own EDR or we can have one that gets the specific data points uh, that we, we absolutely care about. And, and that was really kind of my focus uh, at one point as seen on my GitHub was building different components to be able to enable a person to have that, right? So there's PowerShell Rapid Response, a free platform, PowerShell on my GitHub to be able to do that. Um, there's indicators of compromise that people typically look for, known hashes, uh, other evidence. Well, there's another framework I built, uh, Blue Spectrum, to be able to do that all in PowerShell. And this isn't to say, hey, go use my tools, because uh, one, they need to be updated, but really it's to show what could be done in the language like the possibility is limitless and, and really endless i was i was joking early about i don't know anything about security and i was actually just looking through the uh powershell rapid response and you list 19 different areas where this goes and grabs data and and pulls it for you down from logged in users group changes local accounts like there's 19 different sections it goes through i, I would have named like three of them if I was doing it myself. So it, it seems to me that first thing to do, even if you said it needs to be updated, running this to give me an idea of what I should be looking for, at least is going to help me in the future when I need to build my own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And the good thing about open source is you just build upon it. Uh, but the, the areas don't necessarily change. Malicious actors are still creating their own accounts, not all, but some. Uh, they're still changing permissions, adding themselves to the RDP group, <laughs> go figure, uh, so they can RDP back in, um, things of that nature, right? So being able to grab that information uh, to then be able to make um, some determination is huge. I love talking about security. It's, it always gets you thinking. 
Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's, have- a, it's a cat and mouse game. You know, uh, one thing I, I, I love recommending, which is really low effort, um, create a user, uh, call it a honey account. Nobody should ever be using it. Um, and then monitor for it. If you ever see anybody using it, it is not uh, a drill. It, it's it's for real. Um, and we can have that monitoring being done straight in just PowerShell, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be the next generation um, endpoint detection uh, platform. Do you find that there are a lot of organizations with like EDR platforms that maybe aren't fully incorporating them into their security processes or maybe don't have kind of maybe not taking full advantage of that? You know, every, I, I think every organization has areas in which they could further optimize uh, their technology. And part of that is, um, you know, what I look to do is not do the optimization for them, but give them and share with them some of what what I know in terms of what I've seen firsthand actors do to, to help them in, in that process. Uh, people are, uh, they're, they're really products of their own environment. If I'm in an environment that we have these tools, uh, but we haven't been exercised or we don't see a whole lot of action, then yeah, I, I certainly might not have this thing optimized. I don't have anything to really balance it off of. Uh, but certainly um, most organizations have room to, to certainly continue to optimization. And it's promising that even if you don't have money for those platforms, you can use PowerShell, um, or even if you just choose to just use PowerShell as part of your processes for your IR and to kind of see what's going on. Now, you mentioned creating like a honeypot kind of user and monitoring it. Um, when you create whatever rules around that, are, are you going to, or would you encourage people to like test it, like test logging into the account and then see if it creates an alert? Is that how you go about kind of creating alerts? Absolutely, right? Like um, even when we go in and you know, you've been ransomed and we're telling you how it happened and we're making recommendations for what you should do, um, we all ultimately want to test and validate um, what we're saying uh, to give both of us some form of reassurance, but to also validate, you know, our logic and what we're saying. So yeah, absolutely test it. Log in. Make sure it's logging to the appropriate platform that you uh, envision. Make sure that it emails the appropriate account if that's how you have it set up. Um, and then if not, then just, you know, like an OODA loop cycle, or just go back in there and readjust. And I think as you start gaining that visibility and as you start improving things and creating those processes and getting visibility, you start to kind of have a sense of pride and like kind of insight and understanding. Because if you don't have that stuff, it can feel like security is completely out of your hands. Like things might be uh, in disarray. You kind of have no clue because you've never taken those kind of steps to get visibility into it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, security is one of those things where, um, Going back to you know a child as an example, just because you don't hear the child doing anything doesn't mean that nothing's going on. Security, cyber, all that stuff is one of those fields where there's always something going on. And if you're not seeing it or hearing it or what have you, um, it's a it's a opportunity to you know listen a little bit harder or uh, uh, change some things around your organization. I think that also if you're not currently very far 
into this kind of thing in your organization, it provides a really good opportunity to show value. As you start detecting things and responding, you can kind of keep track of these things and kind of have a lot of really good metrics to show that you're having a really positive impact on the organization. Yeah, yeah. Free up some funding. Yes, yes. Now, this is where it can almost bite you, though, right? Because I'm doing all of these great things in PowerShell, something we already own because we have a Windows license and it's open source and all the other thing, all the other jazz. Um, and if I'm doing so great with that, um, I could lose funding, right? So it, it's one of those things where, um, of course, that isn't the end state, but really, like to your point, to show true value. Um, it's difficult sometimes with leadership to say, to show really the true value because some of these things aren't necessarily measurable or easily measurable. Hey boss, there was no threats today. Why were there no threats? Because we didn't detect any. That doesn't mean that there were or were not, right? Um, and from their perspective, if, if they're not seeing or hearing about it, it either looks like they don't need you or you're not doing a good job. And that's not the case with, with either one of them. So being able to, uh, to do that is great. The other part to that is, as I'm talking to individuals about trying to get into this space, technology as a whole, I'm always preaching about being able to script develop, right? There's no product that I can think of that when bought directly off the shelf provides 100% of what I want. Gets me probably somewhere around that 90 percentile, 95 percentile. And then how do we make up the last five to 10 percent? Well, we develop it ourselves, either through APIs or just developing code and logic to, 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 to do the things that the five to 10 percent is lacking. And when we can do, do excuse me, when we can do that in-house, that's where, you know, benefit really comes in. So you make it sound like uh, security people go through the same plight as uh, DBAs. Like people bring you in when they desperately need you. And then once things are running smooth, it's like, well, I mean, this is uh, this can go. Yeah. So it's a, it's a risk tolerance that organizations have to have to take, you know, uh, and acknowledge an analogy analogy, excuse me, that I'd like to share is almost like your car, right? Like when that check engine light comes on, you're like still cranks. I'm driving it today. But the minute that car no longer cranks up, you're forced to do something about it. And, it and sometimes more. security could be looked upon as like that check engine light. Well, you're here, but it still works. I don't really know the thing, right? But the minute that data is inaccessible, revenue is being affected, that's the car not cranking up. And that's when you're absolutely needed. I think it is important, though. These are businesses at the end of the day. Um, they definitely have their interests and they can make their choices, like you're saying, regarding their risk tolerance and how they choose to proceed with things. Yeah, and for sure. It's our job to inform them the best we can and present things in a fair way. Yeah. So we mentioned Linux a while ago. Have you played around with a Windows subsystem for Linux? No, I, I have not. I, I, I have not. So it's pretty fun. Um, I haven't done a bunch of stuff with it, but in the past I've needed it for like CTFs where like they need John the Ripper or something like that, where that's like a, a Linux utility or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've used it there. Um, it's just, I love the PowerShell anywhere. I can do PowerShell on Windows, PowerShell on Linux, PowerShell on Linux on Windows. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a fun time we live in, fun time we yeah. live in. 
that's that's fun stuff. I've personally gone through that journey of like kind of having security be a what's going on, we don't really know, to implementing some things, getting control of group policy, getting some visibility and all that kind of thing. And then being able to feel like, okay, we actually kind of know what's going on. And um, it's a really enjoyable process. It's, you know, we talk about PowerShell a lot on this show and about developing solutions. And, you know, whenever you have a problem, you know, let's eventually kind of create a solution to fix it forever. And that's a lot of kind of what you're talking about with these security processes. As you see issues, as you see exploits, as you see points to shore up, you create a solution once and it lasts until it needs to be updated in the future. Yeah. And keep building and building and ultimately creating some really cool things. Yeah, I for sure. And and PowerShell is is an enabler, it could be an enabler, you know, and, and we spent certainly a good amount of time talking uh, from a from a defense perspective, security perspective. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention from from a adversary perspective their use of it. I mean, it, it's like playing chess, right? Like some things are highly signatureable um, within a Windows environment uh, for PowerShell, uh, and then I watch actors meticulously try to bypass it. Whether it's breaking down a commandlet's name and trying to concatenate it back together later on, or converting it to the decimal, converting the character to decimal, and then trying to convert it back later on, and shifting characters to the right, and doing their own form of encryption to bypass EDRs, like the ingenuity associated with it is is amazing, and it just speaks to the versatility of the language for administrators, defenders. And people with malicious intent. I think uh, my, my video game habits kind of highlight why I'm behind on this. I play only offline. I like to play against the computer. I go at my own pace. I do what I want to do. I go online, and, I, and I'm lost instantly because I'm competing against other people. So that's, that's, that's where I'm at. I just need security to shift to an offline mode. Ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I recall reading an article a while ago where they actually showed the commands that a person ran when they were exploiting something um, with some kind of popular thing. Are there any interesting kind of habits or things you've seen at looking through artifacts, like particular habits of a person person, or if they got frustrated and typed expletives or anything like that in your investigations? Uh, so I haven't seen straight, straight cuss words, right? Um, I, I, I recall seeing one um, where an actor had somewhere around, I don't know, maybe two to 300 lines of code. And at first glimpse, you open it up and you're like, all right, what is this, right? And what they did was every other line, they commented it out with like, and then they put in like some random text, right? Probably five to 600 characters long. The comment was five to 600 characters, right? And for every line that was real code, they had variables, and the variables were like a hundred characters long. So the variable name would essentially be dang near off the screen, just so you would then have to scroll over and see what they're declaring the variable to be. And I remember going over this with one of my colleagues, and and I actually was cussing because I'm like, "You bastard! Like, what are you? You're wasting my time." So, um, you know, we went through and one of my, you know, we were going to go through and actually 
delete each line of comment. I said, no, man, we're not, we don't have time for this. We're going to loop through each line. And if it begins with a pound sign, we're going to omit it. And now we're just going to get back his raw code. Cool. So now we got back his raw code and we still have his super duper long, uh, uh, comment, excuse me, super duper long variables, right? And I was like, hey, the next way, next thing we're going to do to attack this is I'm just going to change his variable names to one to two characters because having them so long and then scrolling across, like my brain doesn't work like that where I can keep up with that. So I want it shorter so I can get it all on one screen. The third part of that was all this stuff he's now doing with shifting here and all this other crap, he's wasting his own time. Because at the end of the day, no matter what he does, he needs to execute the code. How is he going to execute? Somewhere there's going to be an invoke expression. Somewhere there's going to be an invoke item. Somewhere there's going to be something of the nature that's going to allow him to execute. And once we can find that, that's where we set a breakpoint. And instead of executing it, we'll just print it to the screen. Now, we can just let his code run. And it can do all its moves and fake out or whatever. And when it tries to actually invoke that expression, instead it prints that string uh, to, to the screen, right? Um, so, so there's things like that. There was another one where uh, the code was no lie, 5,000 plus lines. It was a behemoth if I've ever seen it. And this guy, he would have a character, he would shift it to decimal, he would then have some arithmetic plus four minus four divided by one or modulo one or whatever. And then he would change it back to char, right? And he would do that for all of them. And he just was, it, it was crazy. He had stuff that he was declaring that he wasn't even using. Again, trying to tire out the defender mind. I don't have time for all of that. You're still going to execute it, right? I'm going to find where you're executing it. That's where I'm going to put my breakpoint. I'm going to let your code run, do the decryption, do the deobfuscation for me, and then I want to see what you're actually trying to execute. Um, there was another one where literally they were doing XORing, shifting of characters, but the XOR key uh, was in the code. Uh, but again, the same concept. I let you do all your little basketball moves, if you will, all your dribbling, and then we just uh, do a breakpoint right where you're trying to execute. Um, so a lot of it is heavily obfuscated, um, not in a way in which I would put a human on it to mainly deobfuscate. Um, but a lot of it is very genius in the sense that um, a lot of EDRs aren't going to pick it up uh, for one reason or another. Um, and there is a good execution rate associated with it. What really messed them up in those contexts were the event logs, because all their code is in, in the event logs, and that's where we were able to retrieve it and then deobfuscate it. Highlight how little I know. But you always say you look for where they are going to execute it. And are you looking just for specific commands and you're capturing those out? Or is there something else that you catch with that? Because I'm wondering if I'll offer the best with it if they throw in like an alias to say like uh, invoke item is instead of some rather random string, would that make it harder to find to to work around or is am I just way off base? No, no, you're 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 on base. And really I've had a adversary actually do that. So invoke expression, well known at this point. So they did some bit shifting of characters, which was really when it decoded was invoke expression, and then they saved it as a different alias. So they invoked 
that different alias, which was really invoke expression later on. The thing I really appreciate with these actors is uh, a lot of their code, um, while obfuscated, from a syntax perspective or a visibility perspective, is actually not bad. Like they use functions, right? So that's super helpful. Function, function, function. Where's the thing that you're calling upon this function? And then you're going to return the output of that function to something. Okay, now I've bypassed, you know, 98% of your code in terms of the functions. And I focused on the couple of lines at the bottom where you invoke the function and then you return that, that item back. And then somewhere around there is when you're actually going to try to try to invoke it. Now, if this code were to actually be executed, because it sounds like a lot of this we're trying to prevent it from ever running. Um, if it were to actually execute and someone had deep script block logging enabled, um, would that provide some insight into kind of what was going on with the command? Yeah. So uh, we're, we're catching at least the raw aspect in the event logs. If it is, uh, let's say, encoded or there's a follow on encoding base 64, then each layer of that uh, would be caught in the event logs itself. But when they're concatenating and doing that type of obfuscation, then it it doesn't get caught in its raw form. Having it in the event logs is huge, 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 huge. You find that people or actors, I should say, try to clean up those event logs? Yeah. So we've had actors who uh, just try to delete the whole event log. And at that point, you're like, all right, well, something definitely bad happened here. <laughs> you know, yeah, you should be looking for that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and we're looking for other artifacts. Uh, we have actors who are trying to invoke PowerShell in such a way that um, it doesn't write to the event logs. But then there's other artifacts uh, that illuminate themselves uh, in, in that fashion as well. Um, and then there's some actors who, to be quite frank, uh, they just don't care, right? Um, they, their infrastructure is in such a way where even if you see everything that they did and everything that they took, um, it is what it is. And the limitation associated with being able to really get all the way back to them is uh, much more difficult than uh, you know law enforcement or whoever would want to put forth the effort to, to follow. There's a lot of stuff about obfuscation, and then I always forget the the actual phrase, but the what uh, Fred Weidman covered, like domain-specific language, or it's like where you only allow certain language. Does that prevent the obfuscation, or is that constrained language mode? Yeah, yes, thank you. I always yeah. forget it. So, so I haven't been in an organization yet that actually has constrained language mode uh, enabled. Oh, right. Yeah, but if it was, would that prevent all the obfuscation and everything? Not not all of it, uh, but it would prevent some of the .NET classes that are being called upon. Um, I think invoke expression as well. I don't. Think I might be wrong. Heck, now you you got me trying to do it, but I, I thought uh, constrained language mode was only for .NET classes um, of sorts. And in that respect, we would get uh, .NET Web Client, which is something that's typically used to reach out and download. Um, but Invoke Web Expression um, is highly signatureable at this point that uh, things like AMZ and a number of other things should, should certainly catch on to it. Uh, but this is where people are, are doing these bypasses and everything else. I'm reading here. 
invoke expression command let always runs in constrained language. Oh. It cannot validate input as trusted. So it always runs in constrained language. Huh. So I think that you're yeah. correct, right? Well, no, because by default, full, I want to say full language is what it is, and a constrained language is the reduced capability. Huh. Well, that's interesting because people are certainly running invoke expression and it's still not catching. Well, I'm saying it always runs in constrained language. It doesn't say, so invoke expression always runs in constrained oh, language, so it's yeah, not blocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, that, then that's right. That's right. Okay. But, but cool. it's one of those things where, you know, if we're the admins of an organization, right? I don't use invoke expression. Do you use it? Do you use it? No. Then that becomes something that we're signaturing on because an adversary ultimately wants to run their code. And there's only a couple of ways to actually truly get the code uh, to execute. And that's one that's highly used and still uh, called upon today. Very interesting. Um, when you were replying to a lot of these, are, do you see like commonalities between different cases where you're like, oh, this seems to be the common actor, or they, they maybe are just using the same kind of uh, instructions to perform the attack? Yeah, so th there, th there are, you know, I'll, I'll use something like PowerSploit, right? Or even my own tool, Invoke Ghost Log, to, to remove certain um, event log entries. You know, I put that on my GitHub. It is free, as in like beer. Um, I can't control who now comes to download that and use it on an engagement. So to, to see something like that used by one actor and then see it used again, it makes it difficult sometimes to be able to say it is indeed the same actor. And that's kind of the game changer in security. The days in which uh, threat actors had their own very specialized toolkit, while that still exists, it's really not as prevalent as it used to be because it doesn't need to be, right? Um, when I'm using the same thing as everybody else, it makes it a lot more difficult to be able to say it's me versus somebody else. Definitely. The first oh. time when you're doing incident response and you find someone that is using the the ghost event, uh, your own your own tool, is that a point of pride for you, or is that going to be oh man, what have I done? No, no. The <laughs> first first initial thought is I made it right. Like, <laughs> that's it. And, and 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 this is a true story. Uh, I remember. Gosh, I'm trying to think what. Not like I'd be able to talk about the event itself, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, a buddy of mine had wrote some Cobalt Strike aggressor scripts, um, and they were PowerShell based. And the threat actor, no, no story, was actually using them, and they left the comments and everything in. So you know, you write good code, you have your help stuff up top, you know, written by Nando Thomas and Wired Post or whatever. Literally, the code still had my buddies full name and his handle and everything in there. And I hit him up that night. I was like, dude, you have made it. Like, <laughs> like I cannot make this up. A, what, what we assess to be a, a nation state actor is using your code in an environment. And he's like, man, which one? <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> it wasn't, oh man, that that's bad. I'm going to take it down today. It was like, well, which one? <laughs> yeah. Nice, I guess, when you get a, a high five from your opponent like that. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, but it is it is still a double-edged sword, right? Like nobody develops code. Uh, when you develop 
defensive code, you're like, I want this to be used for good. This is to help people. Um, anything of malicious, you're like, hey, this is this is for training and proof of concept. Nobody really wants their code to be used to, you know, shut down a laboratory that's developing coronavirus. And, uh, you know, not not developing coronavirus, developing antibodies and vaccines, for example, or to be stealing millions of dollars from an organization or things of that nature. Like, I don't think that's anybody's um, intent for sure. But I think it highlights how important it is that these unknown tools that are being used, you should make sure that they're not able to be used. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, that also comes back to the double-edged sword, right? Because I want people to be able to understand what a artifact could look like. I want people to understand that they could remove event logs without removing the whole event log. And the way to do that is to produce code to show you that it could do that and make it available to you so you can do it in your own organization in the controlled environment to validate that. I don't want people to be able to do it because they're hiding their their intrusion in your network. And um, yeah, it, it, becomes, it becomes difficult. Perhaps my memory is failing me here, but I recall that there used to be a way that not everyone knew, but certain organizations knew of clearing the Windows server event logs silently without being able to be detected. I think they eventually patched it, but do you recall that? Yeah, yeah. There, there, there was a method. Uh, you would essentially stop the event log service, and Windows has prevented that. Even with service, the service level account, you can't even do it. I think they patched that maybe Vista? was the last one, maybe Windows 8, uh, but but yeah. It's just interesting to, you know, as we go through our careers in IT to kind of watch what happens in cybersecurity as the years go by and more things are made public and we can kind of, it's just such a fascinating um, realm, you know, for, for someone on my end where I don't, I'm not privileged to a lot of what actually goes on, kind of watching what happened and it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, you know, the, it, it, it's like having, like moving into a brand new house, right? You got stuff everywhere. Everything needs to get done. These things that need to get done are patches to vulnerabilities. Well, which ones do you focus on? Which ones have the most attention? You know, the bed needs to get put up because I need somewhere to sleep. Okay, that's the vulnerability I'm going to focus on because it has the highest level of attention. Um, and the same concept there, right? Uh, these things, they continuously are found. Uh, sometimes they're not they're not quickly brought to light for other people to know. Um, sometimes it isn't even till the context of our investigation, for example, that we're finding novel new techniques and we're like, what what is this? Why are they calling upon this? Oh, this is brand new. Uh, cool. Well, let's you know report it and then trying to go through uh, uh, you know the software organization to report it and you know they have their own checks and balances. Uh, it sometimes this could be a lengthy uh, process. And I think it's really cool that we've heard from someone who is hands-on responding when things go bad. And that's a really important kind of part of the security landscape. But I think that you're kind of highlighting a little bit, a very important part is the sysadmins in these organizations who are responsible for patching and keeping things up to date and, and securing these um, holes. In, in order to, I think, my opinion, you can share yours, but in order to kind of get more of that security, we need 
the sysadmins to be empowered, the people in these organizations to be taking the measures. And while responding is great, I think that if we take a lot of the uh, recommendations you've made, we can go a long way in preventing the need for a response, right? If we kind of patch these known exploits. It, it will lessen the attack surface associated with somebody getting into your network. Uh, absolutely. It will uh, reduce significantly the intrusion by way of opportunity. Um, it still may or may not affect, you know, the targeted aspect. But but yeah, it, it, it will certainly play a lot into it, which is, you know, when, when I go into an organization, that sysadmin is, is, is my best friend. That's who I'm trying to speak to when I'm talking, right? Uh, because he is the guy on, at ground zero for this whole thing. Um, traditionally, you know, overworked, um, if you will, wearing four or five hats, um, just trying to make things work uh, to the best of their ability. You know, how do I know? Because I, I was that guy where I was a domain admin of roughly 3,500 uh, user objects, X amount of computers, and I was the main guy. You know, uh, patches needed to be done, but availability was the, the very thing that, that trumped, um, you know, that at the moment. And, you know, how do I help that guy um, do both of those things smartly? And equally. How has your background as a sysadmin played into your kind of now career in just security? Priceless, beyond priceless, because, you know, it, when, when I when I teach the, the Windows PowerShell course, I always take a poll right up front. You know, who in here comes from a sysadmin background? And not to say you won't understand this, but if you're coming from a sysadmin background, when I'm saying, cool, we're going to use PowerShell to query the registry, that makes sense to you. If you're not familiar with the registry, now we're going to have to learn two things, right? So being a sysadmin for so long, uh, the first 12 years of my career, uh, gave me personally the foundation that's needed. So now when I'm trying to defend against a network, um, I have a good understanding of how things work and why they work the way that they do. Uh, in my time of doing uh, red team activities in the DOD, uh, I, I was postured very well to uh, identify vulnerabilities because, again, I understand how things work and why they work the way that they would. When we talk in terms of um, storing malware in places, like I have a talk called, uh, gosh, what is the talk called? Having your pick of the litter, uh, malware stagers and enterprise services. That's essentially me using PowerShell to store fileless malware in things like Active Directory, Group Policy, Registry, I mean, all kinds of areas in an enterprise environment. How would I know that one of those things exists? And two, there's a low likelihood of them being made out. Well, because I was an admin and I know how an admin thinks, you know. Uh, so for me, I, I think it's been invaluable. So it's it's been very helpful to kind of understand the context of what happens in an organization with IT, with the registry, with maybe what an IIS server does, so on and so forth. So when you're actually going through and responding to things, you have that context. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very cool. Uh, now, there's a lot of talk about the need for more people in security. And when we're talking about needing a lot of context, like how do we kind of handle that? You know, obviously getting sysadmins into security would be great, but 
for people who are trying to get in and fill that role, should they, should organizations be more prepared for people with less experience and kind of educate them or should, you know, how do you kind of see that? Yeah. So I, I admire organizations wanting somebody who can perform right now. The fact of the matter is everybody wants that and there's not enough people that can do that right now. Okay. Uh, I think the minute that that's acknowledged, then we can move on to the next part. And the next part is, well, how do we get that? Well, we have to invest, right? Uh, you invest in somebody early on and you have them for the long haul. And then you're able to groom them for what you need and you desire. Uh, for example, uh, I'm, I like to think I'm pretty seasoned, if you will. Um, if I'm working with somebody who's a little bit more junior to me or not very comfortable, then guess what? They get a front row seat to Nando and they get Nando's unfiltered thoughts and the way he thinks and the way he does things. And sooner than later, probably much more quicker than later, uh, he or she is going to be brought up to where they're needed. It's almost like taking a college class. You know, I took certain classes based upon the professor, right? This guy is known in the field and I'm going to learn directly from that guy. Um, and as organizations come to that realization, and my organization is certainly one of them, we have a great internship program. Uh, we have uh, entry-level positions and things of that nature. Um, and there's been a number of people that have gone from one of those positions to um, you know, where I'm at as a principal or even manager um, throughout the years because of that investment. And I think more and more organizations um, who are much larger in size are able to do that and are doing that. If you're a smaller organization, I understand you just can't afford to do that. You you have a team of two people and you can't afford to bring on one of them as an intern. I think it's definitely a sign of a healthy culture and healthy kind of security system if you're able to handle people without the full experience. Because if you're assuming people have a lot of knowledge or are understanding all of these things, um, there may actually be oversights over time. It could be a bit of a risk. So if you have this kind of system that takes people up, teaches them, gives them the appropriate process for kind of where they are, where they can add value and also still learn and get paid and you know have a career, um, I look forward to seeing more and more of that kind of thing and more and more of this change starting to spread and really getting things more secure out there in the world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm going to go the other direction. I'm going to become unethical and I'm going to use your tools just so you can have that moment. Good luck. <laughs> I'm, I'm confident I'll lose. <laughs> this has been awesome. Um, this conversation has gone a lot of really exciting ways for me. I've, I've had a blast. I was actually pretty nervous for this just because I was so excited. I was telling Jordan, I was like, oh my gosh, man, I haven't been this excited for a podcast in a while. Yeah. Um, it's fun to talk about this stuff. You know, these are very important issues that are kind of complex, you know. Um they are. And and you know, they're they're not going anywhere. I mean, it there are forever gonna be problems that we're gonna have to deal with. And um, you know, I, I'd be remiss also if I didn't mention, you know, kind of uh a, a guy who's near and dear to me as, as you got excited about this conversation. Uh, a guy named Dave Hall, a good buddy of mine, actually. Um, before I had made the jump into cyber uh, as a sysadmin, you know, he gave me a PowerShell script. He was also an a, a enterprise admin at another organization. Uh, and he's like, hey, man, this script, it'll get all your users and tell you when, you know, they expire and stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I remember going back to my 
you know, my domain and, and I had, you know, RSET and all those things. Um, and I'm like, okay, what is this and how do I run it? And he was like, man, it's, it's called PowerShell. And I was like, okay, how do I run it? And um, we joke about that because for me, that was the first true introduction to it. And um, he's still doing great things out here. And I, I, I say that because just as powerful as the language was then, it's still just as powerful now. The problems we dealt with then, still problems we deal with now. Um, yeah, they're just going to keep compounding and we just got to stay fast on, uh, on remediation. Awesome. Well, we'll have a lot of great links in the show notes to some of your talks, to um, Under the Wire. Uh, Definitely to your everything. GitHub. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The GitHub is, I like what you said, how it's, um, you know, some of the tools haven't been updated, uh, like in your scripts thing or whatever, but it shows you what can be done. And it's a great starting point. Implement it, see if it works for you, kind of test things out. Oh, you need to tweak this because your environment uses this or that. Okay, you can do that. It, but it shows you a way that you can start creating solutions and building new ones and building on what you've already built. Um, a lot of building in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate you coming to talk to us. This was, this was a lot of fun for me. I, Security is one that fascinates me, but I never spend the time to get great. I just have an outside focus. I was interested by people that really, really understand it because the, it's just a different uh, approach. If a person is interested in the investigative aspect, really understanding the why or how, um, has a chess-like mindset, if you will, or interest, security is where it's at, right? Um, and and it's, it's fun. I mean, it's, you're literally chasing people that you can't see, feel, sm smell, touch, any of that. You're just seeing personas on computers. Got me excited talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, well, now it's time for my personal highlight this is where Andrew shills for, shills for uh, five stars. Hello, friendly folks out there, our dear listeners. Thank you so much for listening today. If you learned something new, if you are listening now and you've uh, made it this long, thanks for listening. I hope you learned as much as we did. Um, if you'd be so kind, if you got some value out of this, please drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice so more people can see and hear the awesome things that Fernando is saying. Um, thank you, dear audience. What, what if they don't want to uh, email us and reach us in any other method? Oh, okay. So yeah, if you wanted to, you could email us and give us some feedback. Tell us what's going on with your PowerShell journey. You can email us at powershell at pdq.com. Oh, but wait, have you heard of Twitter? Yeah, we're there too. You can shoot us a message on Twitter or rather uh, just send us a tweet at PowerShell pod. Oh my gosh, over 200 uh, followers there. Thanks. So you said, uh, you said if, if, you learn, if you learn something new, if you didn't learn something new, I want to hear about that. That's, yeah, that's the one that fascinates me. <laughs> We're curious. We love uh, hearing people with security perspective and love getting their insights. So if this was all nothing new to you, hit us up. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. They are cunning, capable, agile, flexible. They know what they're doing. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com.